Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Andrea, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop. Today's program is Understanding the Role of Immunotherapy in Treating Cancer, and this is a part of one of a two-part series on immunotherapy, a promising new approach to treating cancer. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have over 565 participants on the call, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Algeria, Canada, France, Greece, and the United Kingdom. So this is truly a, it's a, a global call, and uh, we really are delighted with all of your response to this program. This topic is one that really has captured the interest of many people living with cancer, of course, and, um, and I think we have, we have wonderful speakers today to address this topic. Now, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have the best speakers on this program today. I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is a attending physician, thoracic oncology service, the William and Joy Ruane Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris is going to present an overview of immunotherapy and also harnessing the immune system to treat cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to uh, turn over this call to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mark Chris. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you all today about uh, an area of cancer treatment that has uh, truly uh, blossomed uh, in the last uh, several years. Uh, it's been a hope, and for many uh, patients and, and physicians, it's been a hope now realized. Um, the idea of harnessing our immune systems to fight cancer uh, is not a new one. Uh, back in the uh, end of the uh, 19th century and into the 20th century, smart people uh, figured out uh, how the immune system worked, and uh, they developed first various uh, antitoxins against a lot of bacterial diseases, things like diphtheria uh, and other, other illnesses. And it was those same physicians, and, and particularly a, a doctor named Paul Ehrlich. Uh, many of you may have seen his, the movie about him, Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet. Uh, he was one of the first people to uh, write down uh, how uh, the immune system and that idea of uh, generating uh, substances through our own natural means to fight uh, foreign invaders, um, how this could be a treatment uh, not just for cancer but, but for uh, many, many illnesses. Uh, he's widely known as the father of chemotherapy, and, and actually I uh, kind of take uh, great uh, pride and interest in that the, the man who is seen as the father of chemotherapy is also uh, the father of uh, this idea. 
and by the way, he won the Nobel Prize in, in 1908 for, uh, for this work. Uh, since then, uh, we've seen the development of uh, many different strategies uh, to uh, harness the immune system. Uh, some of the other speakers today will be talking about vaccines. Uh, we'll be talking about CAR T-cells. CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor T-cells, educating uh, our T-cells to fight uh, and, and uh, identify uh, certain uh, substances on cancer cells and, and then lead to their destruction. Uh, we also use uh, antibodies as sort of a cornerstone of cancer treatment now. Um, I'm going to ask you to think back to biology in, in um, high school, the, uh, when the body is faced with a foreign invader, uh, what it does is it, uh, it recognizes that and it puts up its defense system. And one of its defenses are um, substances called antibodies. They're proteins that your body makes that are specifically uh, targeted, as it were, to these foreign invaders. So if you have influenza, if you have a bacterial infection, pneumococcal pneumonia, you would have an antibody, your body would create an antibody that would find those invaders and, and, and destroy them. We also have a, a second system in the body uh, that takes cells, killer cells, and uh, what are commonly called T cells, uh, and these fight a variety of foreign invaders, a lot of different kinds of infections, particularly viruses, uh, and also uh, they're sort of front and center at fighting cancer. Our friends, the B cells, though, the ones that make the antibodies, uh, these have been very, very important. And, and many of you on the, on the call that have received cancer therapy have received agents that indeed themselves are monoclonal antibodies and that attack substances that either cause cancers to grow or our sites of vulnerability on, on cancer cells. So drugs like rituximab for lymphomas, drugs like cetuximab used in head and neck cancer and colorectal cancer, and drugs like bevacizumab uh, used in lung cancer and colorectal cancer. All those are monoclonal antibodies that attack uh, cells. And they've taken it one step further, too. Uh, in the area of breast cancer, there's a monoclonal antibody called uh, uh, trastuzumab, also known as Herceptin, uh, this antibody finds a specific substance on uh, breast cancer cells, and then once it finds them, it, it uh, inhibits their growth. And what science has done now is have added on uh, a deadly chemotherapy to that antibody. So the antibody finds the cancer cell, it takes that chemotherapy drug only to the cancer cell, uh, and kills it. It's sort of a delivery system for uh, killing cancer. And this is commonly used in breast cancer, uh, a drug called adotrastuzumab uh, uh, emtansine or uh, casicla. The latest development, though, are drugs that go after uh, the T cells. The T cells are, are probably the, the main way our body fights off cancers. And we've known for a long time that cancers have found ways to evade uh, attacked by these killer T cells. And through advances in biology and our understanding of the immune system uh, in the last one to two decades, we've learned that how exactly cancer cells do that. And as it turns out, what cancer, when, so when you have an a, a, uh, attack by an antigen or attack by some kind of foreign invader, your body mounts an immune response, kills the invader, and then has to turn itself off 
And there's a whole mechanism for turning off that immune attack that your body normally has. And thank God you have it. What cancer cells do is they co-opt that. The cancer cell, if you would, sends out a signal that turns off the immune system to, uh, that would normally attack it. And what has happened in the last uh, few years is that drugs have been developed, again, monoclonal antibodies, that keep the cancer cell from effectively turning off your infection-fighting cells and allows your cancer cell to, allows your own body, uh, your own uh, cells to uh, attack the cancer. These drugs are called T-cell checkpoint inhibitors, and there's two classes of them. There's drugs that go after something called PD-1 or PD-L1, and the drugs that do that are things like nivolumab, pembrolizumab, and entezolizumab. And there are also drugs that go after another uh, immune checkpoint, something called CTLA-4. Uh, and the drug that does that is ipilimumab. Uh, these drugs are available now. Uh, the drugs for PD-1 and PD-L1 are already FDA-approved for melanoma. They're approved by the FDA or in guidelines for all kinds of lung cancer. They're approved in bladder cancer. Hodgkin's lymphoma, head and neck cancer, and renal cell cancer. An anti-CTLA-4 drug, the ipilimumab, is approved for melanoma. So these drugs are out there now, and they have the potential benefit for folks with uh, all those kinds of cancers. The, uh, the benefits seen with these agents uh, is uh, unusual and outstanding. It can kill the cancer more effectively. It can delay the time that the cancer will regrow. And in some patients, it effectively uh, eradicates the cancer. And I think many of you may have read stories where this indeed has happened. Uh, we've recently done a program in our lung cancer patients where after years of therapy, uh, whatever uh, uh, spot has been remaining uh, on a scan uh, was surgically removed. And what we've discovered after years of these therapies in times when the cancer's at bay, that when we look at those spots, the cancer's been totally eradicated. So that's given us great hope. It doesn't happen to every patient, and we're all struggling to find out how to match these drugs to individual patients. I should also add that these drugs work well with other kinds of therapies. I mentioned already using surgery after an immune therapy, but there are programs now studying the use of radiation before enduring immune th these immune therapies, uh, chemotherapy, and also uh, targeted therapies. A key message here, though, as excited as we are about these new drugs, we have seen already that our best results are very often when we combine them with the other modalities we have. And I think that is probably my message to you all today, that your best chance of getting the most out of these drugs, getting the benefit for the longest period of time, is going to be by combining them with other, other treatments. And I would urge you all to, as you plan out your cancer care with the doctors that, that you've entrusted with your care, to make sure that every treatment gets considered, that every expert and kind of expert be consulted, and that this strategy be done for, for each and every patient to the doctors on the phone. Every treatment, every expert, every patient for every patient, so-called multimodality care. Put your team together. Make sure you get all the minds together to bring all these uh, benefits that could potentially be helpful against your cancer to bear on your cancer. Thank you. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That's really wonderful. Just, um, really outstanding and, and a wonderful overview to the entire program. So thank you. And um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our next uh, presenter is Dr. Michael Postow. Dr. Postow is Assistant Attending Physician, Melanoma and Immunotherapeutics Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Postow is going to be addressing emerging role of immunotherapy, including cancer vaccines, and how immunotherapy offers new cancer treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Postow. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. Uh, it's a really appreciate the opportunity to be involved with this program. This is a really excellent discussion that we have about how immune therapy is really changing the face of cancer treatment, and it's really been a privilege to be part of this, and I think we have to be very grateful for all of our patients that have been part of the story throughout and participating in clinical trials to really advance the treatment of a number of different types of tumors. So as we heard from Dr. Chris, a great overview of how the immune system works to try to control cancer. The immune system, as we were hearing about, not only helps us fight foreign invaders like bacteria and viruses that are trying to get into our system, but the immune system also continually patrols our own bodies to look and seek and destroy abnormal cells that could either become cancer or that are already cancer developing. And the way that the immune system works against cancer, unfortunately, is not always perfect. If the immune system was so good at seeking and destroying cancers trying to develop, no one would ever have any, any tumors, and, and this wouldn't be a problem at all. And so immune therapy in concept is really a strategy of trying to understand how in each individual patient we can tweak the body's immune system such that it can reawaken the immune system to fight the cancer that might be present in any one individual patient. So there are a number of different strategies that can be used to try to boost the immune system in this way to try to help control and treat cancer. And what are those couple of strategies? We heard from Dr. Chris about one that's gotten a lot of traction recently, which is a strategy called immune checkpoint inhibition. And just to briefly mention that one before I move on to some other topics, immune checkpoint inhibition is a strategy of giving antibodies, which are big proteins, intravenously to patients to try to help their T cells more actively seek and destroy the tumors. Immune checkpoint inhibitors have been approved, as we are hearing about, in a number of different types of cancer so far, things from as uh, diverse as Hodgkin lymphoma to various different types of advanced lung cancer to melanoma, kidney cancer, head and neck cancer. And each time we do these programs, we're really honored that there's more and more approvals every few months in this area with these immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so it's a very exciting area. When we think about these immune therapies, are they better or worse than chemotherapy? I think in a number of these situations, the immune therapies have been proven to be better than chemotherapy, but not all. Immune therapy is very exciting, yet it still is important to consider there are some situations where chemotherapy is more appropriate for treatment than some of these immune therapies, and it's important to talk with your doctors and to consider where does immune therapy fit into a cancer treatment program. Sometimes it may be the first treatment that one gets for their cancer. Sometimes it might be after chemotherapy hasn't been as successful as we wish it to be. And so it's different depending on every type of different disease. So it's important to try to integrate this at the appropriate time. 
In addition to the immune checkpoint antibodies that we were hearing about from Dr. Chris and that work by releasing these T cells to fight against tumors, there are other strategies at boosting the immune system against cancer, and one of those includes therapeutic vaccines. So many of us are familiar with the concept of a vaccine, which is something that we, we had when we were younger, when we would get a measles vaccine or a rubella vaccine or a tetanus shot or something like this. And essentially what that does is introduce a piece of a foreign antigen so that the body can reawaken its immune system to try to boost an immune response against a particular antigen, which is a little piece of a protein. So for cancer treatment, there's been many efforts throughout a number of decades where different doctors and researchers have tried to take different pieces of proteins from different types of cancer and vaccinate patients to see, one, if the vaccine approach itself can boost an immune response so that the immune system can seek and destroy all the types of cancers that might be expressing that type of an antigen, but also importantly, protecting the patient against the development of additional cancer, so some types of a preventative type vaccine. Whereas cancer vaccines in some contexts have been very helpful at preventing cancers from developing, and a lot of those are actually directed against particular viruses, like the human papillomavirus uh, vaccine that might help prevent cervical cancer. Unfortunately, vaccines by themselves haven't shown the type of efficacy that we really hope them to do for treating established types of tumors, but there are a lot of new strategies that are taking vaccines and combining them with other types of drugs like the immune checkpoint inhibitors that we heard about that are really showing a lot of promise. And a whole new strategy with vaccines that's being developed is taking out an individual tumor from a patient, doing uh, genetic sequencing of that type of tumor to really try to understand what are the different antigens that might be present in one particular type of a tumor and creating specialized vaccines for an individual patient. So a type of personalized vaccine based upon a specific type of a tumor profile. And I think our hope is that all these types of strategies not only will be effective in boosting the immune response against particular types of tumors, but also as we move forward, really trying to hopefully help prevent additional development of, of cancers or even help with reducing the risk of cancer recurrence after patients have had a, a surgery to remove a tumor. So in addition to vaccines, another strategy that is being explored for cancer treatment are called chimeric antigen receptor T cells or CAR T cells. And Dr. Chris mentioned this uh, as well in, in his introduction, but CAR T cells are a type of genetically engineered T cell that is specifically driven to fight against a particular type of antigen that a tumor might be expressing. And CAR T cells have really shown a lot of promise so far in patients that have certain types of blood cancers, like different types of lymphoma and leukemia and they're being explored for patients with other types of solid tumors as well. CAR T cells still remain investigational, so it's not something that everyone can get from their doctor, but it is something that we are very excited about, and we're hoping that over time we can have more and more people having this type of approach, and that over time the list of different types of tumors that can be successfully targeted with CAR T cells will additionally grow. There are many ongoing questions that we have when we give patients immune therapy, whether it's with a vaccine, whether it's with CAR T cells, 
whether it's with immune checkpoint inhibitors. And this really surrounds rethinking the way that we're taking care of our patients that are getting these types of drugs. The side effects that patients may have with these types of drugs are completely different than those with chemotherapy. Unlike chemotherapy, which may cause uh, hair loss or nausea or vomiting, the side effects from immune therapy may be entirely different and are actually related to boosting of the body's immune system rather than suppressing the immune system. And so sometimes when the immune system gets boosted too much, different inflammatory events can happen like an itchy rash or achy joints or other types of changes that a patient might experience to uh, some of their bodily functions, including bowel patterns and such. And it's important if you're getting immune therapy or if you're thinking about immune therapy that you talk to your doctor about the possibility of some of these side effects and whether an immune therapy approach is right for you. And I think the main message is that if you have any side effects, if you're getting treated with any of these drugs, that you stay closely in touch with your treating physician so that we can ensure that the side effects, if any, are experienced are really mitigated and to the best that, that can be possibly achieved. So there's a lot of enthusiasm for this area of, of research and medicine right now, whether it's CAR T-cells, vaccines, immune checkpoint inhibitors, there's many others that are being explored, many explored in combinations with each other. And I think as we continue to hear more about this in the coming months and years, it's really going to be uh, continue to demonstrate increasing and increasing benefits for greater numbers of patients. And our hope is that there will be increasing access to all these treatments throughout the world as time goes on as well. And we're really grateful for all of our patients that are participating in clinical trials, as I think we'll hear about next, and, and how we can move this field forward as quickly as possible. So with that, I thank you for the invitation to come and speak with everyone today. Oh, thank you so, so much, uh, uh, um, Dr. Pastor. That was really outstanding as well and uh, really very uh, comprehensive and also just really giving wonderful examples to people um, it's interesting, we do have a Q&A section, but I'm seeing that people who are familiar with our calls are already posting questions. But we'll tell all of you how to qu post questions so that everyone has a fair chance to post their questions. But they, this clearly has captured the interest of so many people on the call, so I really, um, this is very, uh, very wonderful. Um, and um, our next speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. Dr. Daniels is the Clinical Professor of Medicine, Morris UCSD Cancer Center, VA San Diego, healthcare system. And Dr. Daniels is going to present clinical trial updates, how research contributes to treatment choices, and examples of immunotherapy in prevention, treatment, and recurrence prevention of cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thanks, Carolyn, and, and thanks, uh, Mark and Mike. Uh, great summaries. And I was given the task of uh, talking about how research contributes to um, prevention, treatment, and recurrence of cancer, and that's obviously um, too large. And so what I chose to focus on in my minutes is to just think about how we got here and where are we going, and then use some examples. And so um, I'm not going to touch upon everybody's uh, favorite immune therapy, but I think that there's some really interesting things going on. So in the 1990s, uh, immune therapy was really not felt to have much of a role in oncology. And while there were a few small examples of uh, drugs like interferon was coming online, uh, work at the NCI with IL-2 and some early cell therapy work, 
um, the prevailing thought was, you know, we've tried this before, and and while we've tried to make cancer vaccines, it's really struck out. Now, fast fast forward uh, just 20 years, and it's immune therapy 24/7, and it you cannot go anywhere without opening a newspaper or something that says um, another person cured by this great exciting immune therapy. So what happened? And um, so my topic is how how research has helped change this, and and really it's come from a fundamental change in our thinking of uh, how cancer forms. Uh, while we've had these theories of of mutations causing cancer and causing initiating events, it's really been very interesting um, how promotion, which was always part of the theory has now turned into something that that's actionable and ultimately hopefully actionable for cancer prevention and keeping cancer out of our 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 discussions ultimately. So I'm going to focus on immune therapy and the science that got us into the 1990s um is the same science we have and it's just we need to understand that it has some limitations and that is we need to ask good questions. But to ask good questions about something that you don't understand is is the challenge. So having a testable hypothesis and then the tools to ask those questions in a in a way to disprove your hypothesis. But that's a very challenging thing to do and led us down some roads that um, with great uh, preclinical work showed us that, hey, we have these ideas and we cured cancer over and over again in our preclinical models, learned a great deal of stuff, but when we tried to translate it to the clinic, it failed. It wasn't until we started getting um better clinical trial design um asking questions about um some fundamental basic immune therapy that we started seeing changes in um the results for patients and there are a few um examples i'm just going to highlight uh for example um bladder cancer and bladder cancer uh we can trace these roots back a uh, hundred years with observations by Cooley, who at the time noted that infections led to better outcomes for cancer, observations that BCG vaccination um, led to lower rates of cancer, and ultimately found that by stimulating a local inflammatory response in the bladder led to regression of tumors, and really was one of the first immune therapies out there. It had its limitations, though, in that it only affected non-muscle invasive or non-advanced bladder cancer. Um, now, in the last couple of years, we've seen these new players, these checkpoints that were just introduced by uh, Dr. Postow and Dr. Chris, um, these new players coming into now even muscle invasive bladder cancer. And so a disease that up until recently had a, a very poor prognosis, we're starting to see some pretty remarkable um, responses in in uh, immune therapy for these tumors. So again, how did we get there? Um, this is work that's built on decades of uh, person on top of person. It's collaborations with academic centers, government research, business collaborations, observations. Ipilimumab was mentioned um, as a treatment in melanoma. You can trace this back to people in the laboratory finding molecules on T cells, inhibiting these molecules and showing that T cells remained activated. Another person thinking that that might have some use in autoimmune disease or even cancer therapy. And then it's a very interesting story how 
you know, in the in the 80s that was discovered. The 90s, a company came along and figured out how to make antibodies uh, as therapeutic tools and chose ipilimumab and CTLA-4 as a as a good target uh, for this. Uh, and now fast forward to this this medication through clinical trials. First in 2011 was proven to lead to a long-term outcome in a few patients. Now, when we combine it with a second medication, um, in this case a PD-1 blocker, in melanoma we're seeing a, a sea change in response with uh, an expectation that we can control metastatic disease in not everyone but a substantial fraction of the patients by, as uh, Dr. Postow said and Dr. Chris, combining these immune agents in a more um, understandable way to unleash the immune system and regress the cancer. So this has been a relatively fast process. It sometimes feels painfully slow, but so many tools are coming online now that are letting us interrogate the microenvironment of a tumor to show us which areas we need to intervene in, which therapies may match up better with um, a particular drug and a particular patient to try to personalize our treatments better. Um, there still remains lots of challenges that hopefully the sciences continue to um, solve. For example, while we can control tumors in a lot of melanoma patients, there's toxicity that comes with that. So do we need to give this strong combination immune therapy to everybody, or are we able to use single-agent immune therapy for some patients or find a different uh, combination therapy that changes um, the way a particular patient responds. And there's many, uh, literally hundreds of clinical trials looking at these exact questions right now. And listeners can, can go to clinicaltrials.gov and put in their favorite tumor type, um, look for immune therapies, and you'll see list after list of clinical trials that are ongoing for this. So I kind of jumped ahead to treatments just to tell you where that was going. But what we've learned from the treatment has worked back towards prevention. As mentioned, now that we understand how a cancer is formed, uh, we know that a fraction of the tumors are, 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 for example, cervical cancer, a sexually transmitted disease, that there's a virus there. Well, if there's a virus there, we can make a vaccine against it. And so we have now the HPV vaccine, and the expectation is we are going to lower the incidence of cervical cancer, and we may even lower the incidence of head and neck cancers that are caused by this virus too. We can now better treat hepatitis C, which is driving hepatomas or liver tumors, and all these things feed into the inflammatory drive, that promotion that I alluded to earlier that's causing cancers. And so getting better strategies to decrease that inflammatory drive, not just from viruses, but from our environment, such as from diet, our exposures, and limiting exposures and considering uh, ways to pharmacologically decrease that uh, promotion drive, such as uh, aspirin therapy. The last I'll just touch upon is um, recurrence prevention. You know, what is what is trials shown there? Where where are trials going? Similarly, um, we're getting insights into those driving immune um, impetus for getting a cancer to grow. Uh, for melanoma, we now have 
uh, reasonable, not perfect, but getting there. Um, therapies for adjuvant treatment in melanoma that have improved survivals for patients, and those clinical trials are ongoing. Uh, but we're also looking back at, well, if we understand that, again, inflammation, which can be harnessed to kill cancer, but conversely can also cause cancer, we can modulate inflammation by exercise, keeping a healthy weight, and again, other ways to decrease that inflammatory drive that's promoting uh, cancer. And so there's ongoing clinical trials looking at those lifestyle changes. So that's my general plug for you know, keeping the research fire going, that uh, we are learning a tremendous amount, that we're getting a lot more tools online. And I think we're, we're really making some real progress in adding another leg to the cancer treatment armamentarium, and that's immune therapies. So I'm really optimistic that we're going to continue to make some substantial process, progress here over the next uh, few years. Um, and with that, I'll just say that this is going to lead to that, uh, that truism quote that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and this will ultimately drive down cost and uh, limit um, the burden of cancer disease in our society. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That's a, a wonderful way to kind of, uh, to kind of bring the uh, medical discussion to a close in terms of just all the different issues here and just the wonderful examples you've provided and just to, for everyone to have a better understanding of actually um, the uh, examples of immunotherapy. So thank you. And, and also the importance of participation in clinical trials and what that means. So thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Caroline Edlund. Ms. Edlund is an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care. She is actually our online support group program coordinator, program director. Um, she's our online support group program director. And um, actually, I have to say our online support group programs have grown tremendously. And I believe we currently have about 150 online support groups. So there's a lot of choices for people in terms of groups to join. And uh, Ms. Evelyn is going to talk about Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Evelyn. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. And I'd like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways that we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional supportive services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with a diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York City area, as well as telephone and online support groups. These groups offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a cancer care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. 
these connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this means for you and for your loved ones. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are here to help. So please do contact us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Thank you so much for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Evelyn. That was wonderful and a wonderful um, explanation of the many services that people can access from cancer care. Um, and uh, now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Andrea to bring all of our speakers on board. And if Andrea, you explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. I know some of you are queuing up already and have asked put pose questions, but we want to give everybody a chance to ask questions as well. So, um, Andrea, um, if you could do that, and we'll, we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we do not get your questions before the call ends, I will definitely give you all access to information about how to get your questions answered. <clears throat> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from the line of Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Yes, thank you so much, Caroline. It's an excellent seminar. It's such new therapies. It's unbelievable. Uh, I have two questions. My first question, is the VA working? This is for Dr. Gregory Daniels. Does the VA system right now working on immune therapy for prostate cancer or is anywhere else working on the prostate cancer or do you also have to still do the radiation, I presume, with the immune if it's being done? And is there a vaccine also working on for pro breast cancer recurrence if, if a person does not have recurrence? I had her too and her septum 10 years ago and no recurrence. Is there a vaccine for that? Thank you. Okay. Well, thanks, Stephanie, for your questions. And um, I'll ask Dr. Daniels if you would want to address these questions in a general way. Um, and uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. Um, so, yes, the the VA system, in a general way, has clinical trials, and um, they have both their own uh, internal award system to help support uh, clinical research, as well as they can participate in outside clinical trials. So the same trials that one can find at any academic center can be offered at a VA. I stress the can just because there there always are limitations as to the resources that any VA can can participate in, and so each each site may only have um, just a few studies in any particular disease group. As prostate cancer specifically, um, there have been um, there was a um, clinical trial recently closed. It was open at the VA. It's called PROSTVAC. Uh, we're all awaiting those uh, trials, um, as well as there's some smaller studies ongoing in vaccines. Um, breast cancer, um, I can maybe leave that to my colleagues, but there are definitely clinical trials that have both been completed as well as ongoing for breast cancer recurrence. Uh, particularly in the what we call the triple negative uh, group, uh, which are HER2 negative and uh, hormone negative group. Thank you so much. And does, uh, Dr. Chris, do you want to comment on the the second part of the breast cancer questions, or just? Yeah, I, I don't have any uh, specific, but again, I encourage you to go to clinicaltrials.gov uh, to see you know what might be available uh, for 
breast cancer or or prostate cancer as well. And just remember too that there already is a vaccine approved for prostate cancer uh, already, so that that may be uh, something of help to individuals with prostate cancer. Hey, I, I did forget one important thing in my talk about vaccines that everybody fighting cancer and their loved ones needs to take advantage of all the vaccines for the diseases that they face while they're fighting cancer. Um, both kinds of uh, vaccine against pneumococcal pneumonia, the influenza vaccine, and a vaccine against uh, herpes zoster. You should get all those vaccinations, no matter what kind of cancer you have, with very, very few exceptions, uh, and that can help you. The other thing is to please use your influence with your friends and family. Uh, cervical cancer can be prevented, head and neck cancer, anal cancer, liver cancer by getting the right vaccines when you're young, hepatitis B vaccine and HPV vaccine for both boys and girls. And Dr. Chris, would you comment on their need to work with their oncologist in terms of or they're getting a vaccine during treatment or depending on their um, yeah. Any other health comorbid autoimmune? Well, again, you don't, whatever treatment you take or choose to do, it always needs to be done in conjunction with your healthcare team. But I think they'll be quick to provide these things to you. Excellent. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Sometimes um, we forget, you know, there's a lot going on in, in an individual visit, but these are important. So, really, minding all of you to bring these things up with your healthcare team is really um, very important. It's true. Um, um, so we have a question um, I'm going to ask Dr. Pastor if you could address this question. Um, uh, the question is, do you think that we will see the elimination of chemotherapy and radiation as a standard of care and instead move to immunotherapy early on? So it's really an important question whether immune therapy will completely replace chemotherapy and radiation therapy. I think, I, I, of course, I hope for the best types of cancer treatment that exist that are as least toxic in terms of side effects as possible. There are some highly, highly effective forms of radiation treatment and chemotherapy that can really be curative for a number of different types of cancer. And so while I would love to think that we can replace those types of effective chemotherapy with immune therapy over time, I think it's important to recognize that chemotherapy and radiation therapy, particularly for some diseases, really remains an important type of a treatment modality. And I would love to think of a world where Everything was just immune therapy alone. I think we're we're a ways from that, but if that is the reason to be hopeful, I think over time I, I'd like, of course, to think we could move to that. But I think it's important with the rise of immune therapy, just not to forget how chemotherapy in certain contexts and, and radiation therapy in other contexts can really still be important types of treatment. And I think it they they are often um, thrown to the side with all the enthusiasm for immune therapy. I think we just you know, we can't really forget about that. But of course, it would be wonderful particularly with the more chemo regimens that cause a lot of problems, it would be really wonderful if we had a future where we didn't have to give those drugs and we could give immune therapy instead. Excellent. Thank you. And our next, we have a question from someone on, on the telephone. Um, um, Andrea? Our next question comes from the line of Heather V. Your line is open. Heather, your question, please. Do you want to unmute your unmute your line, Heather? Okay. 
So we'll move on to one of our online questions then. Um, so uh, a question from well, from Patricia, uh, from one of our online participants. If one has been diagnosed with common variable immune deficiency, does that affect the risk of using an immune therapy? So again, I'll repeat the question, and I'm going to ask um, Dr. Chris, if you could address this question, if one has been diagnosed with common variable immune deficiency, does that affect the risk of using an immune therapy? 